So before we start our series that's coming up, um, Contagious Christian, we've got a couple of weeks uh, prior to that on the 18th of, uh, of this month when we, when, we, when we begin that series. Simon's speaking next week on courage. And uh, today I want to tackle an issue that I think lies at the heart of the overall vision and also very firmly lies behind it. And uh, it's represented by the banner here today with the simple word, word salvation. Steve, can you uh, stick the slide on, the first slide, uh, rather than the DVD, and we're going to see that in a second. Just stick the slide on that talks about why we're doing this. Um, We've had a a review of the vision last year. It lasted nine months, and uh, a lot of us were involved in that, and many of us turned up to many evenings during the weeks and so forth. We then spent the early part of this year preaching into that vision, and uh, we're still doing that at the moment before we start this contagious uh, Christian course. And then when we start that course, we're going to have six weeks of Sundays and Wednesdays looking at this whole issue of being a contagious Christian. The question is, why are we doing it? What goes on in your mind when you think that? Can we put the next slide up, uh, Steve, please? Um, It may be that you feel, well, I'm doing this because I want to support Tom. Tom's the new vicar. Been here for a couple of years now. He's been working hard. He's settled in, and uh, we're doing great things. And therefore, he's decided to do this vision, and we need to support him on that. You may feel that uh, we're doing it for the glory of St. Paul's. St. Paul's is a great church. We want people to know about it. We want to get out. We want to get more people here into the church, um, and we want to sit alongside other churches that are growing in the diocese. Or we want to show the bishop how clever we are because we're doing lots of good things. And he'll feel that uh, Tom is leading us well and we're all engaged. Or we just want to earn some brownie points we got. Looks like a good thing to be doing. Well, you won't be too surprised to know that I don't think that any of those, there may be some truth in some of them, but none of them are good enough in their entirety. And I just want to show you a clip from a DVD on evangelism that Bill Hybels, uh, the Willow Creek uh, guy that a lot of us go and listen to every year, Bill Hybels talks about evangelism, and here's a small clip from it uh, that we're going to show now. Steve. I think every Christ follower has to cross a marginal line at some point in in his or her development. So this is kind of the one that I crossed many years ago and I ask Willow people to cross. I say, when you look at family, colleagues, friends, and neighbors who are far from God, okay, ask and answer this question. Do you believe in your heart of hearts that everybody you know who's far from God would be better off if Christ were at the center of their life? This is how you frame evangelism determines whether or not you're excited about it or you feel dutiful about it or guilty if you don't do it. Okay? And when I crossed over and realized, wait a minute, everybody I know who's far from God would be way better off if Christ were at the center of their life. They would have... Peace that passes human understanding. They would have divine guidance. They would have capacities to love beyond their own capacities. They would have the inner guidance of the Holy Spirit for moral decision making. Uh, They would have their eternity secured. Uh, They would look at the world through Holy Spirit lenses. On and on and on the list would go, you see. Okay, Steve, thanks. 
Because our family and friends would be better off with Jesus at the centre of their lives. So that they have the guidance, the inner guidance of the Holy Spirit for moral decision making. And, and this is my main point for today, so that they would have their eternity secured. It's all too easy to lose sight of the fact that over and above everything else, what we are about as a church is salvation. Our work has eternal consequences. If we don't challenge the folks we know and love that they need to surrender themselves to God, then the biblical message is that they will spend eternity locked in a place that we very rarely hear preached about today, a place called Hades, or put more simply and starkly, hell. Now, I'm very conscious that when speaking or teaching on such a subject, we all need to be very careful. This is not about trying to scare people into the kingdom of heaven. We have to earn the right to challenge and share with people messages like this. And we do that, first of all, by drawing alongside and loving people and spending time with them and doing all the other things that we're going to be doing in our vision. But the scriptures are very clear about this. Clear that there will be a day of judgment and that eternal consequences will follow. And we mustn't shy away from that reality. There are 14 references to judgment in Matthew's Gospel and John's Gospels. And many others in Paul's letter to the churches in Rome and Corinth, along with others in Hebrews and the letters by Peter, John and Jude, as well as the book of Revelation. It's a golden thread that runs through the New Testament. Heaven is mentioned throughout the Old and New Testaments. And perhaps most impertinent for today is that along with Paul, Peter and Jude in their letters and John in the book of Revelation, Jesus himself talks about hell a number of times. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, he refers to hell three times. He talks about it again in chapter 18 of the Gospel and again in chapter 23. And then in chapter, 20, uh, chapter 10, he says this. Let me put this on the screen, Steve. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And in chapter 46, he concludes the story of the final judgment. Do you remember the story of the separation of the sheep and goats? With the words, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Taken as a whole, the gospel is both demanding and challenging. But these are particularly heart-wrenching passages. And here's another. So our reading from Luke's gospel, chapter 17, verses 26 to 36. And you might like to follow it in your Bibles if you've got one with you or on your IT, whatever that is. Luke 17, chapter 20, uh, verses 26 to 36. of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. I think we need to turn it up a bit. Can we go back to the beginning? Can we try and get the volume up? People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. That's better. Can we go back to the beginning, Steve? But the day Lot left... 
mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he and it can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is. Steve, can we go back to the beginning or not? Because the kingdom of God... Okay, let's turn it off and I'll read it. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming. Ah. (laughs) We were just there, actually. I'll read it out, Tom. Thank you. Luke uh, 17, if you want to turn to it in your Bible. Thanks. Luke chapter 17, it's on page 1051. Then he said to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, There he is, or Here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding corn together. One will be taken and the other left. Now, on the face of it, this is a pretty difficult passage to understand and accept. What is essentially going on here is life, normal life. Eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. Legitimate activities essential to thriving and surviving. And in and of themselves, they seem, of course, innocent and harmless. God made us in accordance with a certain plan and pattern. He decreed that we should eat and drink, live communal lives, enjoying the blessings and pleasures of creation with others others alongside us. And he ordained marriage in the family as the heartbeat of those communities. So why does Jesus single them out in this way? I think that the answer is that in doing so, he sums up the whole story of the Bible, the whole story of mankind and our troubles. Jesus singles them out because whilst these things are fine in their proper place, they are all too easily, they all too easily become the be-all and end-all of life. 
Those who give themselves utterly and entirely to eating and drinking, worldly relationships and pleasures, running businesses, making money, striving for earthly success, whilst giving no thought to their creator or to their spiritual needs, are doomed to live small and shallow lives. Arrogant in their self-satisfaction and self-sufficiency, they are essentially lazy and limited in their horizons, ignorant of the greatest gift that God has in store for all of us. Living only for this present world, they ignore the next one, and they do so at their eternal peril. Jesus brings this out very starkly in this message. They live the kind of life, he says, that people did until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Until the day that Lot came out of Sodom and God destroyed Sodom along with Gomorrah. And Jesus and others use the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah many times in the New Testament as the prime examples of where and how it all went wrong. How wonderful life must have seemed in Sodom, as it does in today's cities. In this last week, I've been up to London, Manchester and Birmingham for various reasons. Lots to do, lots to see, great fashions, restaurants, theatres, gymnasiums. A feeling that life is permanent. People are all too easily misled by the world and all its glamour, believing that between them, politics, economics, science will solve all of our troubles. Sure, there is no God and no judgment. They, just like the men and women in Sodom and Gomorrah, see nothing to fear beyond the grave. Now, let's be clear. Jesus is not suggesting for one minute that everyone must retire from living and spend a morbid and miserable life of introspection in caves isolated from the world. Least of all, us as Christians. And we aren't in the business of saying to our family and friends that they shouldn't be eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, living in relationship with one another and enjoying every good and perfect gift that God in his infinite grace has provided for all of us to enjoy. We are all of us free to engage in all of those things. But the key issue is that we are not to live solely for them not to be misled by the world and all its glamour, not to be absorbed by, mastered by these things. Why? Because they're temporary. Because we all have an immortal soul within us. Because we are but passing strangers in this present world and we will all too soon be in the next world and come face to face with our Creator. Which is why Jesus says, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. Those who choose to ignore or reject this and live simply for this world and its life can expect nothing and deserve nothing but exclusion in the next. Many people today, many people that we know personally, seem to believe that we live now as part of an enlightened generation with no need for God and his word placing their faith instead in all these things that Jesus talks about in this passage. Their faith lies in worldly affairs. And we need to be quite clear about this. Everyone out there has a faith. They all see the world through a prism and they put their faith in something. And those who choose a faith other than a faith in God 
are no different to those who scorned Noah and attempted to terrorize Lot. Godlessness and irreligion are not new. There is nothing quite as old as rejecting our Creator God. It started in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve decided that they wanted to be their own gods, the original sin that brought with it separation and death. And the downward trend in history that began in Eden encompassed the flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and along with it the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonian Empire in the Old Testament and the Romans in the New. And it will encompass the final judgment of all things when the Son of Man will be revealed in all his glory and the end of history and time as we understand it will have arrived. Now the truth of course is that we've all sinned against God. We all merit the punishment that fell upon Noah and Lot's generation. We've all forgotten our creator at times, ignored him, disregarded his way of life, tried to please ourselves, live for ourselves alone. But the good news of the Gospels is that God himself has provided a way of escape, a way of salvation. He sent his only begotten son, Jesus of Nazareth, and through him we have been offered a new beginning, a new life, a chance to be born again, however deep and great our sin. As Paul says in his letter to the church in Rome, sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and judgment followed that one sin, bringing condemnation and death. But then he adds, how much more will those who have received God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Noah could only build an ark and urge repentance. Lot could only escape and leave others to their faith. But Jesus makes a way out for everyone. He not only exposes our collective sin, but he then atones for it by bearing the punishment for us all upon the cross. He makes it absolutely clear throughout the Gospels that he will suffer many things and be rejected, despised, abandoned by his disciples, scourged, beaten, hung on a cross, crucified and killed. Most awful of all, he will suffer the indescribable pain of being separated from his father descending into hell before being restored alongside him. But he also makes it equally clear that by that very death he will deliver pardon and forgiveness for all who are prepared to believe in him, accept him, surrender to him. Noah could only warn of the impending flood and show his belief by building the ark. Lot could only run. But here is the one who pleads the merit of his blood, who doesn't cry, save yourself, but proclaims, I have died to save you. Which is why when one of the criminals on the cross, alongside Jesus, cries out to him in despair, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replies, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Those of us who accept Christ can rest secure in the knowledge that in him we have our salvation. When we kneel at the foot of the throne on the day of judgment, we can know that through by, but by his grace we are forgiven, that we are accepted, or as the scriptures put it, justified through his blood. 
Jesus went to hell and back to purchase our forgiveness and give us access to holiness. And not to confidently accept his justification is to trample the blood of Jesus underfoot. It is to make a mockery of the misery of Calvary. It is to reject the work of the Holy Spirit. There's a time coming when Christ will return to judge the world and all its people. He himself has warned us of that, making it clear that by preaching righteousness and calling everyone to repentance, and those of us who accept Jesus can look forward with no fear to the day of his coming. For when he comes, we will see him and we will be welcomed by him. Indeed, more than that, we will be made like him and live and reign with him in forevermore. We will dwell, as it says at the end of Psalm 23, in the house of the Lord forevermore. And those who don't? What will happen to those who've made the decision that there is no God, that they have no need for Jesus Christ? They too will find themselves standing in his presence. But just like the other criminal alongside Jesus at the crucifixion, who hurled insults at him, the harsh truth is that they will go to a place where their belief, their faith, comes true. A place where there is no God. A place where there is no peace, no love, no truth. In his letter to the church in Thessaloniki, Paul says this, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at amongst all those who have believed. Being shut out from the presence of the Lord God is not going to be pleasant. In his love, God the Father has done everything necessary to deliver mankind from eternal punishment. His justice requires that he punishes sin. But love, his love, provides salvation freely for all who will accept it. Those in hell are there because they refused or ignored his love and they are solely responsible for their condition. And the realization of this truth will surely be one of the most painful realities in that place. But that need not be the case. We come full circle back. Why are we doing this? As Paul says in his letter to the church in Rome, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they believe in him if they have not heard about him? And how can they hear without someone telling it to them? And telling them is what we are all about. That's why we're doing it all. Many years ago, I heard a Christian describing a dream, a nightmare, really. They had one night. Rising up to heaven, they could see others they knew heading the other way, descending into hell. And as they descended, they cried out, Why didn't you tell me? It reminded me of the story in chapter 16 of Luke's Gospel, the passage just before the one we've read today, in which Jesus talks about a rich man and a beggar called Lazarus. The essence of the story is that when Lazarus dies, the angels carry him to Abraham's side in heaven. But when the rich man, 
who'd lived a life of luxury dies, he finds himself in hell, where he was, Jesus says, in torment. Looking up, the rich man sees Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side, and he calls out and asks for some water to cool his tongue and relieve his agony in the fire. But Abraham replies, there is a great chasm between us, and no one can cross over it. So the rich man then begs Lazarus, go and warn my brothers so that they won't also come to this place of torment. Abraham replies that the brothers have Moses and the prophets and they should therefore listen to them. No, says the rich man, but if only someone from the dead would go to them, then they would repent. And Abraham responds with some chilling words. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone were to rise from the dead. Someone has risen from the dead. Someone has risen from the dead. If that were not so, then I'm wasting my time standing here preaching to you. We're wasting our time as a church. More than that, says Paul in his letter to the church in Corinth, if we only have hope in Christ for this life, then we are to be pitied more than everyone else out there who is simply buying and selling, eating and drinking, building and carving out careers for themselves. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. As in Adam all died, so in Christ all will be made alive. That's why we're doing this. We're doing it so that we can go out in confidence and proclaim the message of salvation. That Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. What people do with that message is their business. That's between them and the good Lord. Our job is simply to ensure that they cannot say, why didn't you tell me? That's what it's all about. It's as simple as that. Amen. Okay, I think... It would be good just to take a moment just to ask God what he wants us to take away from what we've just heard. The message was clear. The message was relevant. But let's just take a moment just to ask him what personally he wants you to take from this. What action, what new prayer you want to pray, what conversation do you want to have? So just take a moment just to ask God that, and then I'll pray for us all.
So, Father, thank you that you have spoken. Lord, would you strengthen us, comfort us, encourage us, inspire us, and help us to see every single person in this world as you see them, with your love for them, knowing your love for us. So, Father, would we be faithful? Would we be prayerful? Would we be obedient to your prompting? And Lord, please, would we be fruitful for your sake? Amen. So let's stand and sing a song that really captures what we've just been thinking about. So let's stand and sing together now.
So, Father, as we come to receive this bread and wine, Father, would you meet with us? As we receive these gifts, Father, might we remember that heavenly banquet that you invite us all to. And Father, as we receive your generosity, as you gave your body and blood, might we be ready to generously share the truth of who you are and what you give us. Thank you, Father. Amen. So we're going to continue now with the Eucharistic prayer here on the screen. As we do that, let's just think about those words that we're saying and their truth, their power and the love that lies behind them of a father who desperately wants all to come to know him. So the Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give thanks and praise. It is right to praise you, Father, Lord of all creation. In your love, you made us for yourself. When we turned away, you did not reject us, but came to meet us in your Son. You embraced us as your children and welcomed us to sit and eat with you. In Christ, you shared our life that we might live in him and he in us. He opened his arms of love upon the cross and made for all the perfect sacrifice for sin. On the night he was betrayed, at supper with his friends, he took bread and gave you thanks. He broke it and gave it to them, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, do this in remembrance of him. His body is the bread of life. And then at the end of supper, taking the cup of wine, he gave you thanks and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for